How do you sell your message? How do you get enough people to listen to you to get something out of what you have to say? How do you get enough of the right kind of people to pay attention so that you can sell your message? There are new opportunities for that in our world. According to one calculation, if you have 5,000 followers on Instagram and you make 308 sponsored posts in a year, you can make $100,000. And everybody who's a teenager just perked up because here's my future, right? Not a bad living if you can find it. It's not a, uh, it's, it's not a bad living for a platform that doesn't require you to make posts that have any kind of meaningful substance to them at all. Um, two and a half years ago, Kylie Jenner had the most liked photo on Instagram. I don't even know what the photo was, uh, but it lost its status as the most liked photo. It lost its status by many million likes to anybody know? who Kylie Jenner lost her most liked photo status to? It was a brown egg named Eugene. This is our world. This is what gets eyeballs today. Uh, Eugene, the brown egg, has over 55 million likes on his first photo. He has 5 million followers on Instagram. And based on a similar calculation, uh, if Eugene makes a sponsored post. He could make well over $250,000 on that one post alone. It's not a bad living if you can find it. Since the first century, the contexts and opportunities for selling your message have changed. The ability to do that has changed, but the basic draw and the basic opportunity to say, how can I sell my message? Uh, hasn't changed. That has been there the whole time. If you can say something that enough people, enough of the right people want to listen to, then you can make good money from it. That was the case in Paul's day. And Paul had a message for the Thessalonians and for others that was not for sale. He had no interest in what's today called monetizing your audience. So as a result, his way of bringing that message was different. And the Thessalonians knew that. They had had experience of the fact that when Paul and his co-workers came to them, they brought the gospel in a way that was different than other messages are brought and it helped to show that the gospel had a substance to it that the other messages didn't have. We find that in Paul's appeal to them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. That's our passage this morning. Before I go any further, I just want to read that text. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, 
We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may have heard some repetition in that passage. If you were looking closely at the passage for repeated ideas, you would hear Paul say that we declared and appealed and shared and proclaimed and exhorted and encouraged and charged you. And you hear both the affection and the urgency of the fact that Paul and his co-workers had something that they longed for the Thessalonians to hear that the Thessalonians needed to hear. That thing, of course, was the good news, the gospel, the, the kind message from God, who in verse 12, calls you into his own kingdom and glory. There's this message of reconciliation from God to rebels, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's a different kind of message. And so, Paul says, it gets delivered differently. The message shaped our motives and it shaped our methods. The Thessalonians saw that when Paul was among them. It had only been a year or two between the time that Paul was there among them and the time that Paul writes this follow-up letter. And the Thessalonians had seen and felt the difference in Paul's methods and motives that demonstrated that his message was different. And so over and over, in fact, six times in this morning's passage, Paul is going to say things like, you yourselves know, you remember, you know. And twice he'll simply say, God himself knows. God is witness. He knows that there is a sincerity and a substance to what drove us and to our way of going about this that demonstrated that there is a difference to our message, that our message is reliable. We were clearly among you with the gospel for God's purposes and for your good. And he describes that we could say in three different sections. He describes what we did in verses one to two and, 
Then he describes what our motives were in verses three to six. And then he demonstrates that. And he says, here's what our motives were like in verses seven through 12. The reliability of that message about Jesus is seen in the fact that when Paul and his co-workers were among the Thessalonians, something actually happened. Something was actually accomplished. Paul says, you know that our coming to you, verse one, was not in vain. It didn't end up empty. And you could very well have expected it to if you were watching, if you were keeping stats and figuring what's going to work out well here. Who's going to be an influencer in Thessalonica? Well, Paul and those with him were, were not set up well, humanly speaking, to be influencers there. And he describes that. He says that they had not only suffered in the last major city that they had been in, they had suffered. They probably showed up with some marks on them of that suffering, but they had also been shamefully treated in Philippi. This would be like being canceled in our culture. This was an honor-shame culture. And when somebody is publicly shamed, they're publicly voted down. And who wants to listen to that kind of person? Who wants to listen to somebody who's been publicly shamed? And that had been their very recent experience. And then when they show up in Thessalonica, things don't lighten up there either. Uh, the opposition in some ways gets even more intense. Like we saw last week, there was... There was an established Jewish community there and, and Paul and his co-workers and these new Thessalonian believers ended up stuck between the rock of, of the opposition of an unbelieving Jewish community and the hard place of an unbelieving pagan Gentile community that teamed up together to oppose the gospel. What expectation can you have of anything good happening? And yet Paul says, you know that our time among you was not in vain. We had boldness, verse 2, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God amid much conflict. Where does that come from? How do you show up without any of the stats that say it's, 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 uh, predicted that you're going to succeed, how do you show up with boldness to continue in your work? When they made their appeal to the Thessalonians, where did that appeal spring from? We see that in verses 3 through 6, when we see what their motives were. He puts this kind of in groups of three, starting in verse 3. He says, our appeal springs not from error or impurity, or any attempt to deceive, which is a very common characteristic when somebody brings a message they're trying to sell. It doesn't have to all be false, but if you're willing to sell your message, then you're also going to be willing to change your message. And you're going to be willing to compromise your message. And you're going to be willing to package some things that aren't completely true with your message if that's what people are buying. Paul says, we weren't. We weren't selling, so we weren't changing the message. Uh, the message that we brought to you was pure. We brought you the gospel of God in order to please God. It's, it's his message. He gave it to us. He wanted you to hear it for what it is. And so we 
told you the truth. And Thessalonians, you know that if our message wasn't true, we would have known that. And there's no way that in the midst of much conflict, we would have kept going. We would have given up. It wouldn't have been worth lying given what it accomplished for us and the trouble that we faced. But as it is, verse 4, we speak. We keep going. It was worth it to us. We had boldness in our God to speak the good news about Christ to you, to urge you to turn from idols, to serve a living and true God, to urge you to receive the terms that this God so generously lays out that rebels who are alienated from him can be brought into his family, can be made right with him, can be made one with him. That's our job. We have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We answer to him, we're dependent on him, and so we speak. That was good news for Paul and for his co-workers. It's good news for the Thessalonians. It's good news for us as well. We stand in the same stream. We're, we, we are inheritors of that same message. And, and isn't it refreshing good news to know that we don't have to adjust our message to, to match sort of what's popular today? Other messages are dependent on popularity for their power. Uh, and, and that can be something as, something as obscure as a brown egg, so long as it's popular. But it has to be popular in order to have power. And if the audience doesn't buy it, then the message isn't worth anything. The power of the message comes from the audience and its response. And that's not true with our message. Our message doesn't have to be changed because the power of our message comes from the sender. The message is just as true as it's always been. We want to be careful with our methods, the way that we bring the message. We want to speak the language of the people that we're speaking to. But God is still good and pure, as good and pure as he's ever been. Human beings are still just as rebellious and alienated as we've ever been. Jesus died and rose and is coming again, and that has not changed. So the message doesn't change, and we don't have to change the message in order to give it power. And so Paul says, we came not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Of course, anybody can make that claim, right? Anybody can claim that they speak for God. Anybody can claim that they're driven by motives, by a desire to please God. You can say those things about yourself, but how is somebody supposed to know that? Paul knows that the Thessalonians know it about him. He knows that they have reason to look at the way that, that he and those with him behaved among them and to say, you know what? They're... The motives that you're claiming, if they're real, they're going to show up somewhere. They're going to be seen. And Paul says, you know what? The motives that we have are motives that were seeable. They, they, if, if they're real, they show up in real life on the ground. And that's what he begins to describe in verses five and six. <clears throat> 
For we never came with words of flattery. Three things. Words of flattery. Nor did we seek, uh, oh, nor with a pretext for greed, excuse me, not with words of flattery, verse 5, nor with a pretext for greed. Then verse 6, nor did we seek glory from people. If you want to sell your message, if you want people's approval, if you want eyeballs on what you're selling, you have something to trade for it. You, you have an opportunity. You can, you can trade up. Now, one of those things that we have to trade up is, is approval for other people. Words of flattery. People will buy those. People like to hear uh, words of affirmation about themselves that don't tell them anything negative about themselves. People like to hear words about themselves that affirm their own ideas and, and whole, uh, whole news outlets build their business model on that reality. The people like to hear what they already believe about themselves and what they already believe about life. And if you can do that well, then you can use those words to trade up. And maybe you don't have a lot of money, but if you can, if you can articulately enough tell a rich person what they want to hear, then they'll pay you for it. One of the commentators that I read this week uh, mentioned that that was a very real opportunity for Paul and for his associates. He says they, they might have tailored their message so as not to affront the rich and powerful. An apostle with the prudence not to cause offense might have attracted patronage. Some rich person to say, you keep talking, I'll keep paying. Might have attracted prestige for his message, a pleasant hall in which to teach it, and a well-earned respite from manual labor. But they decided not to alter the content or the method of their preaching. The good news of the gospel isn't flattering. That's why it's not called the flattering news of God. It's called the good news of God. And it is good. Paul knew this. He knew that the gospel didn't require words of flattery in order to be powerful. He describes this in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 17. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word trading up, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. And then in 2 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. That's what they had done among the Thessalonians. Open statement of the truth. And because we did it that way, we commended ourselves, and even more than that, our message to your conscience in the sight of God. The good news of the gospel isn't flattering, but we know we need more than that, right? If, if you have cancer, you want your oncologist to treat you with dignity, right? You want your oncologist to treat you like a human being. You don't want him or her to be demeaning to you. You want that doctor to treat you 
like a human being. And you want that doctor to treat you like a sick human being. In this case, affirmation alone will kill you. So the gospel of God affirms the dignity of human beings and openly acknowledges the full depth and breadth of their problem, of our problem. It squarely faces their state of rebellion and alienation, being at odds with and facing the punishment of God. But of course, words of flattery can buy things. You can trade up with them. Like, uh, like Kyle McDonald, you may have heard about him. He was a guy in Canada who several years ago made a series of trades, 14 successive trades over the course of a year. He started with a red paper clip. He traded it for a fish-shaped pen. And then 13 trades later, he traded up for a house. So if you're good enough, you can trade up. And you can do it even with your words. And so it would have been very, very natural to come with what Paul describes in verse 5, with a pretext for greed. Telling people that they are good or affirming the message that they already want to believe simply in order to get paid. And you can, if you can find the right people. Of course, it's not always about money either. It's not always about telling people that they are impressive. Sometimes it's about getting people to think that you're impressive. And Paul says that wasn't us either. Nor, verse 6, did we seek glory from people. These are things that, that eventually can be seen. If, if Paul is coming with words of flattery, you're going to hear them. If words of flattery are missing, you're going to know it. If there's a pretext for greed, you're going to see him stacking up cash. And he says, we didn't do it. You can see whether he's seeking glory from people. So Paul can say to them, you know that we speak the gospel because God sent us for you. We speak the gospel to please God rather than people. Now, it actually would have been okay for Paul to receive support from the Thessalonians while he was there. That, that was actually the normal way for things to happen, the normal way assigned by Jesus himself. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9.14, The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So that's what Paul means when he says, We could have made demands, we could have made demands on you as apostles of Christ. Not mean demands, but just this is just the normal way for things to work. But Paul was, was, was dead set on making sure that the Thessalonians knew that this was a different message. He was dead set on making sure they knew that, that the motives and the methods of the ministry were different. He wanted them to be absolutely clear that he wasn't selling them something and he wasn't trying to sell them. So he went above and beyond so that he could say to them, you yourselves know, you know this. Friends, brothers, sisters, you know what we were like among you. We were not impressive, but we did have influence. And we really wanted to have influence. Where do you see that in normal human life? A place where somebody longs for influence, really does have major influence, 
and in so many ways is not impressive even to the person that they're influencing. We see it in parents, right? The place where they become unimpressive is right about when the kids turn maybe 11, 12, 13. They don't want to sit with their kids or with their parents when they go somewhere. It's not impressive, but it is influential and it is deeply affectionate. And Paul says, that's what we were like among you. Here's what our motives were like, verses 7 through 12. We were like tender parents. Being affectionately desirous of you, verse 8, we were ready to share with you our own selves. Really, what, what better example of affectionately sharing yourself for the good of another person than the example that Paul uses in this passage, in, in verse 7, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And then verse 9, what does it take? What does it take for an affectionate mother to give herself to her children for their good, even for their survival? Paul describes what it looked like for them. Of course, this is a metaphor in their case. And, and what, what it actually represented, what it looked like in verse 9 is this. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. What did it mean for them to give themselves, their very selves, to the Thessalonians? Well, it meant something pretty unimpressive. It meant daily manual work. It's the kind of labor that people would have, would have looked at and thought, I would rather not do that. It was not the kind of thing that people would have looked at and said, wow, what does that guy have that I'm missing? It wasn't impressive. It was just normal work to provide for their own needs. It was the kind of things, the thing that the Thessalonians themselves would have gotten out of if they could just find some rich patron to pay their bills, doing manual labor to support yourself would not have been naturally impressive to the culture. Somebody worth listening to is somebody who's going to get paid for what they say. And yet, this is what Paul appeals to for the Thessalonians. He says, look at the way we were among you. It shows you not that we were impressive, but that we were real. And that we brought you something real. This is something that's better than culturally impressive. There is a substance to their approach that shows the substance of the message. It showed that their motives were different. And it demands the answer to the question, why would someone do this? Why when somebody shows up and they could be given a pleasant hall in which to proclaim their message. Instead, they won't even receive basic needs from their audience. They work themselves to do this. It's because they had the same kind of affection for the people who, who were coming to and who had come to know Christ as a nursing mother has for her own infant. He said, we wanted to provide for you. We weren't there because we wanted something from you, but because we wanted something for you. Then in verses 10 to 12, he, he just shifts the metaphor slightly. And he says, you know that we, we exhorted and encouraged 
and charged you while we were among you as a father does that for his children. We, we exhorted and encouraged you and charged you to be holy and righteous and blameless and, and to do it in some specific categories. We came to you and we said, followers of Jesus, you have, you have chosen to trust Jesus with your whole life. And part of what that means is that you're trusting Jesus to guide your life. You've been trying to find life, certainly in service of idols. You've been trying to find your life in all kinds of uh, immorality and being unfaithful in your marriage. You've been trying to find your life by getting out of your daily work. And Jesus has something better for you. So Paul's going to get into these, these base level life changes. And these were the kinds of things that Paul and his partners were urging and, ex and exhorting these new believers to take on. A new life, a new life that comes from trusting Jesus. And Paul says, when we were among you, you saw us model that kind of trust. You know that when we were among you, we were, verse 10, you are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. Marketing versus parenting. There's every difference in the world. There's one similarity. One of the very, uh, one of the only very specific things that I remember from my college education that I can actually quote was from one of my business profs. And he said that the purpose of marketing is to make you discontent. Purpose of marketing to make you discontent. And if, if a marketer can make you discontent, then they can sell you stuff. That's why they're trying to do it. Do you know that's also in so many ways the purpose of parenting? The purpose of parenting is to make you discontent, but for a totally different reason. The purpose of marketing is to make you discontent in order to profit from you. The purpose of parenting is to make you discontent in order to profit you. So a father comes to his children, says, kids, there is something more for you than you were born wanting. You're born with these basic desires. And if you go through life only seeking those desires, your life is going to be a waste. And I don't want that for you. There's something more for you. There's something more for you to have. There's something more for you to know and to experience. There's something more for you to do. You're a human being made in the image of God. And there's so much more in life for you than consuming. And I want that for you. And Paul was among the Thessalonians with that kind of appeal and exhortation and encouragement and charge. He said, there's something more for you to walk in a manner worthy of God. And this is the God who comes with extravagant generosity. This is not simply the God who says, you haven't been living right, now live right, or else I'm going to smash you. There is a severe warning, no doubt. But this is the God who comes with an indescribably generous offer. This is the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. There is something better coming, something better for you. Paul actually refers to this in his second letter to the Thessalonians. In chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, this call into his kingdom and glory. To this end, he says, we always pray for you 
that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for, for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ, that he might be glorified in you and that you might be glorified in him. He calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And he has a different way of doing it. He doesn't do it mainly by impressiveness. Impressiveness is fine. It's okay, but it's not the way that God works. And it's not the way that we show others that the gospel is real and reliable. Uh, This week, for those of you who are familiar with our situation, you know that Amy and I are working on a transition into international mission work, pastoral training work. And so we had a series of meetings this week with Reach Global, the organization that we're planning on going with. During one of those meetings, we were, we were talking to a man who, who for uh, his early years had spent his life working in a, in a juvenile detention center. And he told us about two people who had showed up to help the young people in this detention center. And he said one of them showed up and evidently had had a rough background and so he tried to have an influence with these young people by saying, hey, I, I know what it's like for you because I grew up rough too. He said there was another man that came in who was the man who had the real influence. And he said, this man wore a bad suit and a toupee. And he did not try to prove to these kids that he was cool or that he was like them. He just loved them. And he had an influence on them. He cared about them and they knew it. And so there was a substance and it was a substance that demonstrated his message as well. You know, one, one, one point of application for us, for you uh, in moving forward as a church, of course, as we move forward, you're moving forward also. I think the Lord has good things for you, including in the pastor search process. And I'm really glad that, that there has been a series of prayer requests for the, the pastor search committee. If you've ever been on one of these things, you know it's not easy. It is a challenge. It, it, it is, it's a challenge at many levels. Here's one of the challenges that the pastor search committee is going to face. A tug, a tug on everyone's heart that we can all be praying for that I think this passage would inform. And that's the tug of impressiveness. Pray that for the pastor search committee, as they evaluate different candidates, that impressiveness would be kept in its proper place. It can be really deceptive. Now, I hope that that the next pastor that you find is impressively good at some things. I hope you're really blessed by that. And at the same time, we can all pray that that would not be the deciding factor in choosing the next person for this role. God, as I hope has been proven over the last six years, does not need impressiveness. He doesn't need it. He can do things in ways that the world would look at as unimpressive. So let's pray for the next pastor, for his family. Let's pray for someone who knows that the message is not for him to sell. Let's pray for someone that knows that the message 
is for him and that the message is for you so that he would be for you with that message. Father, we do pray for that. We know that when you shift your children around, you do not miss the interests of any of your children. You you do good for everyone. You are the perfectly capable father. And so, Father, we just pray that that here the, the priority would be the message, that we would be unwilling to sell it, that we would be unwilling to change it, that we would be willing to adjust wherever we need to adjust in our methods, but unwilling to adjust the message. And Father, I pray that as the search committee evaluates different options for the next person to fill this, this particular role at Grace, that you would keep impressiveness in its proper place, that you would bring men for this role who are capable, who can demonstrate that capability, and who know that the message is not their own to do what they will with, that it's yours, that it's been given to them to serve your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.